The Athletic. This is the best club in the world. Don't care what other people do. The Liverpool machine under Jurgen Klopp has been absolutely astonishing to watch, hasn't it? And it's all underpinned by those incredible levels of fitness and conditioning that the players have to achieve. So for this pod, we're going to look at what goes into helping them last the distance. Also, why UEFA have been accused of pre-planning the statement blaming late fans for the Paris chaos. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can read all of the articles on Liverpool and everything on the site if you head to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod. And right now, the price is just a pound a month for six months. That's a special price, a pound a month for six months at theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod. I'm Steve Hoversall. Simon Hughes joins me on the Red Agenda to take a closer look at a special report on Liverpool's medical department. You might have seen it on the site. It's fascinating stuff. And as I mentioned in the top of the pod, Liverpool's success under Klopp can be put down to a few things, but one of the most important elements is fitness, of course, the durability, the ability to keep putting it out there on the pitch at a high level, game after game. That's almost his trademark, Si. Yeah, it is. When he became Liverpool's manager, obviously he arrived with a reputation of drilling his teams both tactically and physically. It'd be the key to his success at Dortmund. And it's been the basis of pretty much everything that's happened at Liverpool over the last seven years. The purpose of the piece really is just to examine, I guess, the consequences of that that, that process and to see where, where it places Liverpool now, really. Because it hasn't been a great deal of change to the Liverpool team over the last five years. Obviously, additions here and there, but... By and large, the same players since 2017-18, certainly since 2018. And as we've seen, it's been a a sort of a tough start to the season where the the team struggled at times to meet the the sort of, I don't want to say the standards, but potentially the expectations of of the past when it comes to running. You know, being able to press teams, being able to harry teams, harass teams. That's been what Liverpool have been synonymous with. And and that, that obviously hasn't been happening. So, the reason why I decided to, to, to investigate sort of the, the culture at the club, the culture behind fitness and, and treatment and recovery, I thought it was a, an important time to do that really and, and, and see both the positives and, and sort of the, the well, you, you could say negatives, but the, the consequences of doing that over a long period of time. And it's really interesting you, you've done it now because obviously there is that that conversation about the seven-season syndrome. Uh, there's always going to be comparisons to how Klopp fared at Dortmund and, and Mainz because he adopted the similar approach. And that, you know, some people have that mindset, oh, he gets to seven seasons and things don't work properly after that. But it, was that almost a little bit of a thought underneath all this? It was, yeah. I mean, it, there's obviously been a lot of talk about that, hasn't there? I mean, it, seven seasons is a long time, isn't it, to, to be mm. playing largely? I mean... He's had a slightly different experience to Liverpool than he had at Dortmund, whereby at Dortmund, his best players, every 12, 18 months, two years, will get taken away by either Bayern Munich or or maybe another big European club. At Liverpool, since the departure of Philip Coutinho, until Sadio Mane, that, that hasn't really happened at all. Let's not forget Sadio Mane wanted to leave Liverpool. It was it was his decision, and that's that's why... Liverpool granted his wish after after a, a long period of service. So at Liverpool, he's he's managed to keep the team largely the same. So I would argue probably that there's there's more of a 
a chance of this happening at Liverpool, you know, in terms of people have spoken about burnout happening because, you know, year on year the players have been being asked to do similar things in terms of the demands, you know, whether it's pre-season or, or during the season in, in preparation for every game. So I spent a lot of time on the piece. It, it, it took a, a month or so to put together, really. I, th- I think the trigger point wasn't really the... Um, wasn't really what you just suggested. It was it was the departure of Jim Moxon as the as the as the first team doctor. I thought the timing of it was very unusual. You know, just before the season started, there's been a big turnover over, over of staff at Liverpool. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd heard one or two things about like sort of you know that not just the drain on the players but the staff as well. Yeah, you know how how tough it is to to deliver what you know Klopp and the players expect. You know, so that was that was the starting point. So I've been on that story the story for a good month, spoken to lots and lots of people. I know there's maybe a perception of journalism now that you just you speak to one person, they give you the whole story of what's happened, and that's just not true. You you, you obviously need to get it everything that goes into the story multiply sourced. That's an expectation, you know, at, at the Athletic that we we can't just put any old bit of information that we have uh, into into a story. We need to make sure that it's it's double if not travel source. So that is the case with this piece, and you know the the expectation on Liverpool year on year. Certainly up until 2020 was during pre-season players would be expected to run as much as 70 kilometres a week, you know, in pre-season. That's, that's a huge ru- amount of running and, and by and large that served the team well because during the course of a season that expectation drops to like between 40 and 55 kilometres depending on how many games a week you, you, you play. If you're playing a two-game week with all the training it can be as much as 55 kilometres. So again, that reinforces why preseason is 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 important. There's a, there's a deb- internal debate at Liverpool about whether you know that 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 distance is more of a psychological advantage over a physiological advantage. You know, the players feel once they've got through preseason, you know, it's a bit bit you know old school really, like like you know sort of going back to the boot room days. Training so hard that the matches actually become quite relatively easy by by comparison. You know, in terms of the tests on the body. So there's all that, you know, that examining the impact of that year on year on year and where it, I suppose it leaves Liverpool now. You know, that there's a, a sort of a, a big story through the piece about sort of the, the internal battles that have gone on at the club in that time as well, which I certainly wasn't fully aware of at the beginning of the process of speaking to people. I'd heard bits and bobs, but it's only when you sort of speak to one person, another person, another person, you realise that you know, there's a picture here which which you can you can work with. So... It was an interesting one to put together. Do you know what? It's an absolutely fascinating deep dive and it, it's an education really into what goes behind getting the players to a certain level. I encourage anyone to read it. I've sort of structured this pod around the order of the piece, if you like, because it makes a lot of sense. So at, at the very start of it, you start off by looking at the players who played the most minutes for Liverpool throughout that that clock reign. And, th- and there's no surprise, really. You're, you're Andy Robertson's, you're Mo Salah's, you're Trent's. They're up there topping the charts, aren't they? Many of these players not having the luxury of the breaks that you know would help them reset, recover. Well, obviously Andy Robertson um, got injured in the in the Napoli game in the closing stages of that game with a knee injury. So a lot of the problems that Liverpool have had this season, they had I think they had ten injuries by the end of August, and most of them were were soft tissue muscle injuries. Now I suppose you could have a debate around why Andy Robertson injured his knee. I mean. If if he, if he was in peak physical condition, may would he been able to move quicker in that situation, which would have got him away from the impact of a of the injury that he sustained, or there, there has been a lack of clarification over exactly what the knee injury is? Is it wear and tear? So 
there is that sort of caveat. But um, yeah, Andy Robertson has done more mileage than any Liverpool player on, on a football pitch. I think it's since 2018. There was a bit of research into FIFPro, which is the, 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 the union of footballers across Europe. They did a big study on players over a, a long period of time. I think it was something like 280 players. And Andy Robertson was, was high on the list of players that have, have played a lot of games in what they call the critical zone, where they should really probably be getting a bit more rest. So I think as much as more than 60% of his games have been played in that. And then I think that there's 20% of his games, there's only been a, a three-day gap in between one game and the other, which which obviously is going to have a big impact on the player. I mean, people have been giving him a lot of, quite a fair, fair amount of criticism for his performances this season. He's been substituted a fair bit for Simakas, and Simakas has started one or two games in, instead of him. I think this all explains a bit of that, really, why... I, th- I suspect that the club realised that you know that he does need some more rest. Unfortunately, Trent Alexander-Arnold wasn't examined by FIFPro, Fee- but given that he is not far behind Robertson in terms of the number of minutes he spent on a football pitch, you can probably draw similar conclusions about where his physical state is. I, I would say, although he's he's played less international football, so there is that there is that as well. So. Yeah, I mean, these are two players like Andy Robertson in mid to late 20s, Trent in his early early 20s, still played huge amounts of football over quite a long period of time. It's easy to forget. It's like five years, four or five years, a long time in football when you're just at it all the time with very little rest, particularly when the demands are so high at Liverpool. So there is going to be a consequence for all of this and maybe maybe we're seeing a little bit of that now. I think, I think Liverpool, it's since been put to me that Liverpool are trying to adopt the tactical style, you know, in terms of the expectations on running has dropped a little bit over the last couple of years. They're trying to be more possession-based. But the problem with that is that, you know, I think the data shows that this season compared to last season, you know, that the running data has dropped again. So I don't necessarily think that's by design, to be honest. You know, it's, it's potentially quite alarming. So, yeah, uh, that was like sort of the intro of the piece, really, trying to bring it up to date of, of where some of the players are at, you know, trying to explain the exposure that they've had to to match minute, minutes and um, minutes on the grass. Of course, Cy, behind Jurgen Klopp and his first team coaching staff, there's a whole host of people involved in the, the sports science department, whether that be physios, performance gurus. One guy who was pretty fundamental to Liverpool's success in recent years. He's not there now. He's left the football club, but he was there when they won the Premier League, there when they won the Champions League, was Philip Jakobsen. Just tell us about his involvement and how pivotal he was to the success of this side. Okay, so there's a lot, quite a lot to unpack here, really. So, yeah, he joined as the head of performance in 2018. Now, it was an interesting appointment because... The idea was to sort of try and bring a lot of the staff in line, really, with, you know, and have a one philosophy between all the staff and improve the communication between the different departments, whether it's the physios, the sports scientists and and the fitness team, because the first few years at Liverpool, certainly, there there were quite a few problems, you know, Jurgen Klopp brings with him his, his, his own inner circle of staff, if you like. So that would be Peter Kravitz in the early years, Buvatu obviously since left in 2018. Pep Linders sort of rose up through the ranks. He didn't bring Pep Linders with him, he inherited him, but really liked him. And he became part of that sort of inner circle, if you like. People who he, he, he sort of trusts and speaks to, you know, confides in. You know, he, he, they get the sort of the, the, the worst of his moods and, and, and sort of 
<laughs> the sort of the best of his moods as well when when that comes. The the sort of the secondary staff, if you like. So that that's as I said, the the uh, the outer circle of, of physios, sports scientists, fitness people. They're by and large appointed by the sporting director. So that would have been Michael Edwards at the time. Now there was a bit of a you know cultural clashes between ideas about how to operate according to what the expectations were by Jurgen Klopp. And it was identified by Michael Edwards that somebody needed to sort of oversee this process and bring people more in line with one another. So that's where Phil Philip Jacobson comes in. He he previously worked with Michael Edwards at Portsmouth going back, you know, a long time so that they, they, they knew each other. He'd worked in a I think a, a clinic in Qatar for a long period of time, almost a decade before he arrived at Liverpool. So that was the, that was the thought process behind his appointments. Unfortunately, it's been explained to me that, you know, in, in those early days it was quite clear that he was going to have a, a tough time convincing people that his his way was sort of the right way. He was very protocol driven, wanted to know the science behind all the decisions that were like sort of being made. A key sort of lieutenant of Jürgen Klopp is Andreas Kornmeier, who people have seen on the touchline, you know, looks like a little, looks like Jürgen Klopp. He's got the same glasses, similar hair. Uh, he was hired from Bayern Munich in, in the summer of 2016 with the remit really of drilling the players, getting them fit, supremely fit. So it was, it was a big responsibility on Andreas Kormeyer. You know, he, he he replaced Ryland Morgans, who'd been uh, Brendan Rodgers' man on, on, in that field. And he was very much a Klopp appointment, Andreas Kormeyer, and deserves a huge amount of credit, I would say, for, for getting the players to a level that I think a lot of people probably didn't think was possible over a long period of time. That being said, I, I think there was a few personality clashes with people Behind the scenes, he was very much sort of, um, he was not quite as protocol driven, if you like. He, he sort of, he would sometimes decide decisions on on a, what, what players would work on on the day rather than necessarily sort of go through a long process of, of, of discussion, which, which happens sometimes. So this happens at every football club, of course. You know, the, the idea that every, even at the most successful football clubs, that everybody gets on famously. Is just is just not true. It shouldn't necessarily be so much of a surprise. This I would say if you're reading it, but then equally, it is the reality of it. I think that does need to be reflected. You know that that with you know the pursuit of success, there's a lot of collateral that that, that happens as well. But, so, but something worked perfectly, didn't it, to get them to did. Champions League success, league success in yeah. that that period. So obviously that the, the pieces of the machine all blended properly at that point. Well. No, no, not really. No, I wouldn't say that's true. I'd say that certainly Cornmeyer was was able to get distance into the players' legs, which helps. But it was put to me that between 2018 and 2019, uh, 2020, there was a lot of sort of internal bickering really that was going on about the best way forward. And Jakobsen wasn't really able to get across what he felt needed to happen to to be able to to make better decisions about the players physical state I would say so this contributes to Jakobsen leaving in 2020 just after Liverpool win the, the league title he left the club a year ahead of his contract ending you know I think Liverpool at the time put a statement out saying that he was returning to Germany transpired that it was on garden and leave and he has since done work for for other parts of Fenway Sports Group so he's worked for I think uh, the Boston Red Sox um, so he's clearly highly valued by by Michael Edwards and other people at FSG. But unfortunately, it just didn't quite work out when he was there. So Liverpool carried on pushing on, you know, was getting a better team with more experience throughout this period. It's not an exact science football, not everything, not 
sometimes things happen in in spite of relationships, I would say. You know, you, you could argue, I mean, we were discussing before the podcast, you know, and Rafa Benitez won the Champions League. It certainly wasn't because Liverpool were the, you know, the best team in Europe or had the best system. Sometimes sparks happen, which 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 allows teams to flourish. It's not necessarily because it's the best in class in everything that it does. So Philip Jakobsen's obviously left in in, in twenty twenty. There's been a you know a big turnover of staff in that period, which has led to Jim Moxon leaving. He's only been he was the 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 club sort of the club doctor really for for a relatively short period of time, eighteen months to two years. And now they're trying to find another club doctor. So clearly there are things that need to be resolved. It's going to be interesting to see how that unravels because Michael Edwards has since left. Julian Ward, his, his uh, successor might have his own ideas. Whether Jurgen Klopp will have more of a say you know, on, on appointments below his inner circle, that will be interesting to see because after, after Philip Jakobsen left, Jurgen Klopp was able to get Andreas Schlumberger in as as in a similar role, really very similar titled role. His his sort of emergence and in terms of seniority has been a bit slower, really. But but that doesn't mean that's not being critical. It just means that I think he's taken time to sort of survey what's going on. I believe that he has got a very good relationship with most staff now, and he's been able to shape and make more appointments himself around around what he thinks needs to happen at Liverpool. So, so yeah, that, that will be interesting to see over the next sort of 12, 18 months, how his relationship changes with people as as he becomes more senior and, and takes more senior decisions. Uh, I think Liverpool made an appointment on his say-so over the summer. You know, I think that reflects really that he is becoming a bit more, has a bit more power at the club now. There's so many layers to the medical staff here, aren't there? And the piece details them perfectly so you know you have a look at that and you, you're reading about different people like Schlumberger and Cornmayer who you might not know much about but all of a sudden it, it makes a lot more sense the idea of fitness you can look at it in a couple of ways one yeah you've got to get them as fit as possible but you've also got to keep them fit injury free haven't you and there's a big point made in the piece that while Man City and Liverpool have done that the majority of Man City title winning seasons have been where they've managed to keep their players fit. It's coincided with that. Yeah, yeah. That that's sort of the conclusion of the piece, really. That that there's a prevailing feeling in football of the this the importance of injuries and, and keeping players fit. So there was a study done by uh, an Israeli group of analysts. I think it was the 2017-18 season where they established there was a correlation between points and injuries that you have and days missing. As well as positions, and if that if that if that is one hundred percent accurate, it's fair enough to say that last season and each each of the last three seasons, when Liverpool have won the league, City have won the, the league twice, the the injuries have 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 massively influenced really the destination of the title. I think City last season had something like three hundred and north of three hundred days less missed through injury in terms of their players, which means that by the the calculations of this study. That could have been worth two points to them, and if they don't have those two points, Liverpool win the league. <laughs> so it's uh, it's quite frustrating, I suppose, from a Liverpool perspective if you hear it like that. And then obviously you you, you see the season before where Liverpool's season's absolutely decimated by injury. Okay, one of the injuries which to Virgil Van Dijk you can't legislate for. You know, it's a, it's a it's an impact injury. If you've done your your knee and you're going to be out for a long period of time. But the issue is is that. I think where Liverpool probably can learn lessons from that is that when 
things tend to go well at Liverpool when when there are fewer injuries and the selection is more consistent and there's not as much chopping and changing it. You could say that about any team, you know, the, the, the sort of the machine of Liverpool rolls on in these periods. But the issue that Liverpool have is that when two or three players are missing, the two or three players that have to step up have to quickly get used to the expectations in terms of running. So whether that's, you know, sort of a jump from maybe 28 kilometres a week to, to, to 40 or to 55, that's a big jump. So getting the, the the distance into those players' legs, there's a there's a, a danger around that, you know, within care and more injuries because the players aren't as used to to running that level of distance. No matter how many training matches or training sessions you have, there's no substitute for matches really. Uh, competitive matches, you know, people call them bounce games in in in, in you know at, at the training facility in Kirby. Obviously, they have a purpose, but you can't really recreate the the sort of the, the match level intensity where points are being played for. So this is the challenge for Liverpool, you know, to try and bridge that gap, really. I mean, one of the things that was put to me was that obviously at Liverpool is a very much a player fair sort of culture, whereby, again, this this probably does happen at other clubs, but, you know, that the Jürgen Klopp, you never hear Jürgen, a player complain about Jürgen Klopp. I mean, it just doesn't happen when, when they had the, the really terrible run two seasons ago and they lost six games on the bounce. There was no grumblings from players, agents, nothing like that. They, they, they sort of sympathise with, with Klopp, really, which you don't often get in football. He has absolute trust of players. And that's because that they, they know, really, that he's on their side, 100%. But that, that has a consequence, I would say, for, for staff, you know, in terms of, particularly when the, the attitude towards training is so intense. You know, the, the players are so committed to training. But <laughs> it's been put to me, you know, that if you try and tell a player, well, don't, you should probably not train today quite difficult position to be in because the player is going to is the player going to listen to the member of staff or is he going to go with his instincts and train so there's that whole sort of culture that that is as both contributed towards the success of Liverpool but it makes it harder to sort of I would say for staff to sort of monitor the injuries and and, and preserve the player's physical state at times the thing is Steve at every football club no system is absolutely perfect you with with some stuff that you gain, you lose other bits, don't you? It's this isn't a piece that says, well, you know, this is you know sort of bad that what Liverpool have been doing. It's just reflecting that there are consequences for for the the choices that they make. I suspect you know that there probably will need to be a, a turnover of of players at some point, you know, in in the near future. I think that process has already begun. We I think we can see that, and I think that's also affecting the results at the moment. Obviously. Changing players, slight change in style, you know, new players still getting used to the team. It's it's obviously having an impact on on the team really, and and and, and the the fluidity of way the way they play. It's an intriguing insight into what goes into sort of tuning the players. Special report, balancing players, pressure and performance in Liverpool's medical department. Uh, size written, it's on the Athletic site right now, so you can read that in much more detail. Hello, I'm Lindsay Hooper, host of the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. After the euphoria of the Euros in the summer, the WSL is back with some massive shocks already. This weekend, there's some mouth-watering ties with a record crowd expected for the North London Derby at the Emirates. And it's Derby Day on Merseyside too. Plus, there's a titanic tussle in South London as Chelsea and Manchester City go head-to-head, both looking for their first points of the season. For all the insight and opinion you need, join me and our stat panel of experts this week and every week on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Listen for free and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
We're going to move on uh, from there to a story which broke uh, yesterday. I think David Conn from The Guardian led on this one. Uh, UEFA pre-prepared the Champions League final statement blaming late fans. So we're all aware of it. We're all aware of what happened in Paris and the the problems that went around um, the match. But the idea of the statement being pre-prepared in the days ahead of the game is it's shocking, really, Sai. Yeah, I only wish that they pre-prepared all the match arrangements with the same, well, I was going to say stealth, but clearly not. I've been thinking a lot about this, Steve, over the last 24 hours and accompanying that piece in The Guardian, there was a, a very good sort of video story, picture story of, of how everything unraveled on the day. And I, I would implore anyone who, who who might feel a bit uncertain about exactly what happened to, to, to read it. And, and, and look at the images that that story uses because again it, it just for me it just, it just reminds me that everything really comes down to a lack of organization I was there in the stands not in a, in a, in a press seat on the night and I, I could tell on approach to the ground exactly what the problem was it was two very simple aspects that if these issues were were, were dealt with effectively not just by UEFA but by the local planning committee and the match organisers, that we wouldn't be having this conversation now. The French failure, again, to react to a train strike. You know, workers obviously entitled to, to strike. There was no concession made for that, which meant that one train station, a central hub on approach to the ground, wasn't being used. So everyone was piling through the train, same train station. There was no contingency made for that, for that eventuality, which meant that when, when we approached the ground... I think there was, I can't remember whether it was a T junction or, or, or a crossroads, but there was a point where there was a very basic old sign which said "Stad Left." Everybody was taking that route. Now, if there'd have been stewards or any signage sending people back towards the other route towards the the other train station that was closed, we would not be having this conversation now. But there was none of that. Not there was no no signs, nothing. Uh, not there was no guidance, absolutely nothing, which meant that everybody ended up at exactly the same point, at exactly the same time, which led to a crushing situation, which led to the collapse of the security operation. It's just so simple. It, it, it probably doesn't need as much investigation. I don't understand why UEFA are taking so long with this investigation. It's already appeared before the French Senate and they've drawn their conclusions. Obviously, there's been huge reporting over it, which have reflected sort of what has happened. I think that the reporting on it has generally been... Excellent. Um, a lot of reporters were caught up in it. I'm a bit concerned, I must say, that UEFA are planning to release their findings in in November. Now, the, the end of November. The end of November when there's a World Cup on. Where's the attention of the world going to be at this time? It's a very easy way to bury something that either is damning on UEFA or potentially, again, scapegoats the fans. I mean, I, I cannot use words strongly enough about how people behaved on that day. When you talk about behaviour, it, it has a negative connotation. Had it not been for fans, there would have been a disaster at that football ground. I have absolutely no doubt about that. And it was the collective memory of Liverpool fans that stopped that happening. So unless UEFA, this UEFA report has admits that their failings, it's not good enough as, as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of other people are concerned, to say, well, we gave the Stade de France, we gave it to them, it's their, their problem. It was put to me like this yesterday, and I totally agree with it. If you have a bounty castle and 
there's a problem with the bounty castle and somebody gets badly hurt because the bounty castle breaks at a I don't know a garden fate or something. It's not it's not just the manufacturers that get the blame. It's the organizers as well, and UEFA organize this event. So if they're awarding it to Stade de France, they they must have confidence that that, that event can take place. And I know that Seferin, the the UEFA president, has spoken as being quoted as saying that they bent over backwards to try and get this event on. If they don't think it's possible to host a, a Champions League final at short notice because of a global event in Ukraine, because obviously there's there's been a war there and there's no games going to be played in, in Russia, then they should have either cancelled the final altogether because safety comes first, or they should have had a two-legged affair at Anfield and in the Bernabeu, two grounds which have hosted lots of Champions League games you know, and, and is, is capable of doing so. It's just not good enough. So they, I think, for the first time ever, have to look inwards because if they don't, I think a lot of people aren't going to feel safe at their matches anymore. We should remind ourselves that UEFA has not admitted any failings at all itself or, or retracted the statement about supporters either side. Um, and, and as you say, as to this statement being released or report being released at the end of November, it, it just feels at the moment like a bit of a fudge, doesn't it? Um, but that news uh, breaking yesterday, and th- there is a terrific piece on the uh, the Guardian UEFA pre-prepared Champions League final statement blaming late fans. Uh, well done to David Conn who's written on that, and a great video that goes with it as well. I think we'll leave it there for the red agenda. Once again, let me direct you to size special report balancing players' pressure and performance. Really worth a read on what goes on in the medical uh, situation behind uh, the players' performance. And thank you very much indeed for listening. Catch up with you again next week. See you then.